Policyheads, welcome to our 11th episode. Here we will be discussing about Donald Trump and his 2020 US presidential strategies. We have here joining us Dr. Kiara Delazari. Thank you, Kiara, for joining us today. What a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Um, so before we discuss, I would like to just briefly introduce Kiara. So Kiara is a lecturer in media political sciences and political communications at the University of Melbourne and Monash University. Currently, she is also a political analyst at SBS Australia. Her research focuses on cultural diversity, migration, citizenship rights and elections. She has also authored a book titled Transnational Politics, Citizenship and Elections, the political engagement of transnational communities in national elections impressive portfolio. Um, so before we begin our discussion about the 2020 US presidential election and Donald Trump in particular, I'd like to begin by quoting Brian McNair in one of his books. He said, and I quote, as a general rule, the effects of political communications of whatever kind are determined not by the content of the message alone, or even primarily, but by the historical context in which they appear, especially the political environment prevailing at any given time. My question would be, what are your general thoughts on this? And if you agree with the statement, then would you agree that political leaders cannot be solely judged by what they say or do, but also by what makes it happen? What makes them who they are? Yeah, absolutely. So that quote is quite interesting because um, if we were analysing the same political context a couple of years ago, it would be still relevant compared to what we're looking at today. And in the case of Trump, of course, we cannot analyse and understand what's going on in the American uh, political elections or political campaign without looking at what's going on in the country and the context in which Trump uh, was able to succeed. Um, Trump 20 years ago probably would have never worked, but Trump today is very much working. Mm. We see that. And there are many different factors that we can, we can look at and we can analyze it. Um, the, you know, the, the rise of populism, for instance, as a factor could be something that explains a lot. Um, I, you know, we tend to hear a lot about talking about populism, what it is, what and we sometimes people overuse this word because it's kind of like, it's like a big umbrella under which people just put stuff and try to explain phenomena. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not necessarily the case, but probably it's worth it to understand the definition of populism, but Trump represents what populism is like and the way of he communicates, he does, his political, puts together political strategies, try to talk to his targeted audience in a way that's very unique. And it is dictated because because of the current political environment um, in the US, um, some issues that have never been tackled in the past that of course they are emerging right now, uh, socio and economic disparities that you see and differences that you see in the context, um, all these aspects there, put it all together, uh, they created the perfect political environment for a politician, pardon me, he's not a politician, he's not a, he's not a career politician, but he has become a, a politician to be so successful in such a very short period of time because he responded to some needs. Um, people that wanted to have a voice that never been heard. Mm -hmm. um, hence, that statement is very much relevant. You cannot understand Trump without analyzing the context in which he was elected. Mm -hmm. 
I think in relation to what you just said, um, the same thing, the economist Paul Crookman has also said similar things to that, that Donald Trump is not the depart- a departure from the past, but the combination of where the conservative movement has taken the US for decades. And Francis Fukuyama in his book as well has also spoken quite a bit about this so-called resentment in relation to so-called identity politics, which I would take the, the question further. Would you agree that George Trump is a combination of a broken political and media environment in the US? Mm. Well, there is a lot of a lot of criticism about the media environment in the US. The fact that you know there is such a like a strong connection, or you know, there is a, like politics and media are so intertwined um, in in the US. Hence, media um, uh, or journalists, let's put it this way, are not able to uh, you know to do their job properly. And by properly, I mean in the traditional sense. So for instance, trying to make politicians uh, accountable for what they do. Um, hence, I don't want to get into that kind of general discussion and saying that journalism is not working well and how journalism has changed over mm-hmm. the years um, in the US. I think there are very good journalists out there. They're trying to do a very good job. The problem is that uh, we see some media outlets contributing somehow in building a specific type of narrative around some politicians. And, you know, I'm referring to the fact that Fox News in the U.S. has been always very much supporting the right-wing conservative mm-hmm. parties, um, party in the U.S., um, and hence that has become a very important platform for politicians and as a result for Trump uh, to be able to reach out to an audience because they are helping to support a specific type of narrative. This doesn't mean that we don't see other media outlets trying to provide a counterbalancing, you know, somehow Mm -hmm. the the circumstances, but definitely when media are, and especially private outlets, or are very much engaged in political leadership or in the political discussion of what's going on, or trying to build a specific type of narrative um, around politics and politicians, then you'll see uh, scholars like the one that you mentioned mm-hmm. questioning um, the uh, you know how politics can work without the media support and vice versa. Whether there's a very much interference of journalists and media in the way um, politicians do their work, and in the U.S. because we can see. Uh, media outlets taking very strong positions in favor or against some of the political parties Mm -hmm. or some politicians. We see that happening very much so in that political context. Whether they're doing a good job or not, I think is very, very, very hard to say because um, there's lots of speculation, lots of people there are absolutely trying to undermine the work of journalists. Mm. Such as, (laughs) such as... Donald Trump himself. (laughs) Donald Trump himself. So I think... I think it's it's dangerous to get into that kind of debate. And I think mm-hmm. there are some very good journalists out there that they're doing a very good job, whether sometimes journalists are not provided that kind of in-depth analysis or they're even scared sometimes to go down that path because they don't have that kind of mm-hmm. support from the institution and trying to make um, politicians accountable. That's another story. But definitely we see that kind of environment happening in the US specifically. And so... Um, it has been even more and more challenging for um, politicians to 
well, as for journalists to, to work with politicians and try to provide mm. a specific type of narrative in that sense. Well, we, we talked about um, journalism and political environment, um, and I'd like to highlight more of the you know democratic values of political communications. Mm. Assuming that we're talking about political communication is in the in the democratic governance perspective, then one of the key themes of democracy is of course the rational choice of the public, meaning that it assumes that public makes rational decisions, especially in political context. But Plato and heaps of other political critics have long argued that the public is not rational and they are actually sentimental in nature. So the opposite. So do you think that this is actually the strategic weapon for contemporary political communicators? And do you think that this is like the very pitfall of democracy itself and it's being used by political communicators in the present time? Absolutely. Uh, presenting data, presenting evidence, as, it's not as appealing as presenting uh, irrational arguments or emotional arguments or trying to relate to the audience um, to create that kind of connection that's required to build trust between politician and the audience. And I am saying so thinking about many different examples, not necessarily just Trump. We see that uh, very, very often politicians trying to create that kind of connections um, with the audience, hence the rational um, argument is not relevant at all. Um, people mm. and politicians, and when you think about political communication these days, fortunately or unfortunately, I would say, I would say more unfortunately from my perspective, but probably here comes my pol political and academic <laughs> background combined together. They are not presenting rational arguments to support their thesis, support their point of view. Uh, they like to go straight to the emotions and engage people with emotions. And every time um, I use this example and I try, I, I talk about this using an example, is the example of uh, migrants and refugees, for instance. It's something that it's very, um, it goes straight into the guts of the people, right? Uh, the inclusion or exclusion, allowing people to come in a country, excluding them, uh, people that are coming because they want to steal our jobs, you know, that kind of specific narrative. It's not rational. There are no, there's no data presented in order to support that kind of specific argument. And I wish there was so that probably people would make claims and be supported with evidence. And But at the same time, politicians are not interested in presenting data to the audience. They just want to present a specific type of narrative that creates um, hate, creates mm -hmm. panic, creates emotions that will definitely guide people to vote for that specific politician because he's presenting something that um, he or the team or the party would potentially fix. And mm -hmm. hence, um, going and trying to, you know, create an emotional connection, trying to build emotion rather than rational, um, providing rational um, an argument that's rational with evidence and so on and so forth. It's definitely something that we see not necessarily happening. And also, to be honest with you, when we see data provided most of the time, the analysis of this data is not necessarily, um, you know, uh, clear 
mm -hmm. uh, and transparent analysis, more an analysis that it's used to support that yeah. specific kind of argument. So it's also framed, isn't it? That's right, absolutely. So mm -hmm. it is very interesting to see you were mentioning uh, Plato, but going back in ancient Greek and uh, ancient Greece and ancient uh, Romans and how people were doing politics and the kind of like the oral engagement of discussing and talking to people to convince them strategies are always the same and ultimately a rational argument is not what people are looking for because it's complex it's complicated mm -hmm. to sometimes understand and when you're speaking to the general public it's much easier to engage with them through emotions hence we see them happening more and more often i just use the example of uh, immigration because it's quite easy to understand and mm -hmm. the kind of examples that brings with that such as you know stealing our jobs or uh, making other kind of you know bringing also the connection between migrants and terrorism that's something that was quite common a couple of years ago mm -hmm. there's no such evidence where do we find the evidence on that hence it's something that has been worked very well in Australia, for instance, it has worked very well in other countries in Europe, for instance. So that kind of creating that kind of narrative, that doesn't make any sense from a rational standpoint. Mm -hmm. However, when it comes to the general public, it works pretty well to find that kind of support that's needed to like to get elected for politicians, for instance. Yeah, I also uh, read a an academic journal the other day. Um, there's this political analyst who describes Trump's campaign in 2016, you know, given his constituency and he presents himself as the prophet Jeremiah of the Bible. Um, you know, he offers salvation to the broken United States and things like that, which I find a very, like, it's a very strategic narrative, but it's not true. Mm. And so if you think about it, I don't know if you're familiar with the composition or like, you know, of the population in the US, but mm. the religious component, religion, is very, very important in the American culture. Despite mm. the, even though we have different kind of religion, it doesn't matter when there is that kind of connection between religion and that kind of politician. It's not a case. In some countries, you will never see that stated as as much as you would see that in the American mm. politics and also recalling that kind of somehow connection between religious and religious aspect or religion and that kind of politician. It's something that it is done on purpose and it's, it works very well mm. in, in the American context. And yes, absolutely. Even though that's not necessarily the case, but you know, it's providing a narrative that can work in that specific kind of context also because uh, we have to remember that Trump is targeting a specific type of audience, a specific type of electorate. That's not necessarily highly educated or it's not necessarily uh, exposed to different political views. They are very much people that have been going through struggles from a financial perspective because they work, um, they belong to the kind of like lower socioeconomic mm. status um, of the country. Uh, hence, that's something to add on top of it. We see that part, being part of that kind of group and on top of it, most of the time we see that the concept of the religious component overlaps with that specific mm -hmm. kind of socioeconomic group of people. Hence, you know, all these strategies put in place to talk directly to them. Mm. Yeah. Um, we, we will return to the discussion about Trump's campaign. But before then, I'd like to talk about... Uh, recent Trump's interview with Jonathan Swan, 
I find it very interesting watching that interview. I think a large majority of people would agree that Trump has done relatively terribly in that interview. And, you know, he lost control of where the interview went and he couldn't answer some of the questions or like most of the questions that had to be repeatedly asked over and over again. This type of interview hasn't only occurred once or twice. It has occurred a couple of times this year. Do you think that this, some critics would say that this is like um, showing his weakening power, but do you think it's actually a failure of political communications from his point of view or is it deliberate? It has been very interesting. I was thinking about that because I saw it, you know, I watched it. Mm. And I, of course, I read also comments about that specific interview. Um, there are a couple of interesting points here. I think, I don't know whether it was deliberate or not. I think, I think Trump and Trump's team um, got a little bit, um, they underestimated that journalist mm-hmm. and they underestimated also the style of the journalist. So, you know, the fact that he's kind of, it seems like sometimes he's joking was kind of like more informal mm-hmm. uh, compared to some American journalists that where they, uh, that they are specifically uh, working in the politics or political aspects of the country. Um, probably they might underestimate it in the sense that they thought it could, they, that kind of interview could have played uh, well uh, for also providing, also try not provide a different image, but also make like demonstrate that Trump is not necessarily against journalists. So he was willing mm. to be interviewed by a foreign journalist. That could be something um, that uh, it was very helpful for them to see as a potential, as, as a positive aspect to consider. Um, there was a lot of lots of criticism uh, in the US towards the journalist, the Australian journalist, mm. yeah. um, because it was a, a kind of like a different way of doing journalism, something that wasn't necessarily appreciated within uh, the US media uh, environment. Mm-hmm. I would just speculate and say probably there has been a little bit of jealousy in a sense that we know that Trump is not keen to have a one-on-one interview with journalists as well. And the fact that uh, an Australian journalist got uh, the chance to sit down with him and mm. ask him questions, also uncomfortable question to some extent, um, was something that creates some jealousy in the American environment. Because as you mentioned, that didn't happen that often. Um, l- lots of people commented on the fact that um, it was not positive for Trump at all. The outcome was not positive at all. Kind of mm. like he lost control of the narrative there that he wanted to give. And um, on the other side, you had a, a journalist that was not scared. And probably the fact when you walk in a situation where you, you know, that you have nothing to lose. Yeah. And you can get the best out of it if you mm-hmm. are willing to push boundaries a little bit. So it was not even scared to ask questions. Jonathan Sean was very, very into that. So, um, and Trump definitely lost control. And especially going back to the main point, when he, when Trump started to show data to demonstrate his point and, you know, and, you know, the journalists started to question that, that interpretation of the data, why are you interpreting those data? Where do you find that kind of analytical evidence that you are explaining that? Um, and Trump could not answer those questions. So that's how interesting to see you can have a data set, but then it's your interpretation of it that can be used in one way or another to support your point or another point. 
Uh, and that was the most interesting part to me, and just like the clear demonstration of how you can get a data set, try to use to support your thesis, but at the same time, people can complete flip the argument and yeah. trying to question why are you interpreting those data in such a way while I see a completely different scenario. Mm -hmm. I see a mm -hmm. completely different uh, data set and what the data is telling me is something completely different. I don't think Trump managed that interview quite well. Mm. I thought he came out pretty weak. He came out pretty weak at some of the Fox News interviews mm. as well, which is quite surprising, right? Because, you know, usually yeah. he's kind of like triumphs in that kind of setting. Yeah, absolutely. And that was something else that came out recently. It was really yeah. that as well. Seems like Fox News is not necessarily on board with him anymore. And, uh, you know, there is no other candidate running for Republicans, right? Um, yeah. That's him. Uh, it would be interesting to see uh, if he loses, who's going to be the new person to, to represent uh, that side of the political spectrum, the conservatives and the Republicans in this case, um, they might already have someone in the pipeline that are just going to wait for Trump to go, um, hence trying to put some distance um, with him. But, you know, it's an interesting time, though, because, you know, we're running, they are running a political campaign for the election. So uh, it's an interesting time to see Fox News kind of like um, stepping back. Shift allegiance. I also acknowledge in the interview with Jonathan Swan, where he mentioned the mail-in voting. You know, a number of people have been observing that when he tweeted about this mail-in voting and his disagreement towards it, it was released on Twitter um, just 16 minutes after the economic report was released. Mm. But some media outlets are also framing this issue as like in, in juxtaposition with him trailing in polls. Do you think that this is his disagreement towards mail-in voting is actually a distraction towards what's happening in reality? Or is it just him trying to escape something that he doesn't want to happen? Well, you know, you find like it depends. It depends how you see that. It depends how uh, what's the ultimate goal, because it could be a great distraction uh, to have that kind of making something an issue when it's not necessarily an issue or vice versa, while behind the scenes you're working on something else. So uh, it's a great way to distract the audience and mm. trying to shift the attention towards something uh, that you want people to talk and discuss. While at the same time, you're not necessarily interested in that, but you want people to focus on that or you want mm. people to focus on that aspect, like male voting, uh, that you know may or may, not, may or may not be relevant. Mm. But at the same time, it's a great strategy. And that's something that I think uh, social media really much help politicians to do that because Trump is tweeting on something right and so it becomes important somehow because that's what he's focusing on mm -hmm. but you know at the same time you don't know what's really going on behind the scenes so it's kind of like setting two set of agendas the social media agenda that where you can distract people and behind the scenes the real agenda the political agenda that they mm. have so it could be not necessarily that relevant uh, mm -hmm. at the end but um, it's a very interesting strategy to put in place if you want to distract people and making them believe that's important while there's something else going on. And I, I think it's, I find it really interesting because objectively speaking, it's an effective political strategy, right? But as a general public, it's also pretty scary because you can't really know what's happening. And it's like the transparency of democracy itself is kind of jeopardized. Um, let's move on to Trump's 2020 campaign. There's a lot of observations that Trump's 2016 campaign, in hindsight especially, was curated quite 
strategically. So his catchphrases like make America great again and build the wall were such simple terms that spoke so much. It conveyed his policies on immigration, massive tax cuts and rebuilding what most people see as an exclusive cultural nation. There's also lots of observations that you know, the seemingly weak, weakening power that Trump has not deliberately shown the past months. Do you agree that, you know, this political power is really weakening? And do you agree that he's really lost control of the 2020 policy agenda and his own campaign? I think there are a couple of factors here. It's not like the, the strategies and that they have had in place in the previous one, pretty much the same that they have right now. The problem is that there are other factors right now that are very much influencing his campaign. Uh, in terms of slogans that you put on, I can see that, you know, as a positive, not about him per se, but from a strategic political standpoint, I think they're very much on top. They're easy, they're straightforward, they, people can understand and the message is clear. The problem is that before COVID happened, um, he had a very, very good chance to be elected again. Because of the current situation, I think he has lost control over the campaign because there are other elements that are interfering with that. And mm-hmm. back in January, February, if you were asking me the same kind of question, I would have said to you, oh, I'm pretty confident he's going to get elected again. Mm. Um, right now, I don't know. To be honest with you, I really don't know because no one thought he would have been elected in the first place, and he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so watching America, <laughs> yeah, U.S. campaign is very fascinating in that sense. So, yeah. um, but um, is, it, is it because of his response though, or to COVID nineteen? He's no, I don't think he's uh, okay. So. Um, it's not this is an issue that it's happening across the board, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Politicians are not necessarily ready to deal with a pandemic. So yeah. um, we see everyone struggling at that stage. Some countries got very lucky. Mm-hmm. Hence, leaders are coming across as very successful and very much in control. Others, for others, not necessarily the case. Um, I think he lost control because of not necessarily smart decisions that they made from the get-go. And hence, the opposition started to, um, I don't know whether cherry picking is necessarily a good term because, you know, it's something, it has become, it's not so uh, little as a problem. It's become like, an, like a huge national problem. So yeah. um, definitely they started picking on that aspect and those aspects, they're demonstrating that he's not capable to respond to a crisis because of the decision that he made. Unfortunately, uh, from a political standpoint, this is happening while a campaign, uh, uh, an electoral campaign is happening at the same time. Let's say that this pandemic was happening three years ago. Uh, as soon as he was, like, uh, right after he was elected, would not have had the same impact that he's having right now on running a campaign to be re-elected while dealing with a pandemic. Nothing has changed in terms of what he wants, what he wants to achieve, what he thinks. So the ideas are the same. So the political campaign is in place, that's currently in place, is the same one as the one in 2016, in the sense that Mm -hmm. his agenda is the same. The factor that is pretty much affecting that whole campaign is, or factors, plural, are, you know, the elements that they were not considered, <laughs> they did not ex- happen back then. And now he finds himself in a very troubling situation because he could have had a good chance, but you know, uh, the response probably was not as good as 
people were expecting. And of course, the opposition is making the most out of it. And uh, yeah, so whether the campaign per se is not working, I don't think so. I think there are other elements there. They are influencing the overall outcome of the elections. And uh, that's also why you don't want to have a pandemic <laughs> near the end of your term. <laughs> it will very much affect your, you know... Your, it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. How, if and how, you'll be re-elected. Well, the, the younger Democrats supporters, or majority of younger people, we have been very disappointed with, you know, all these events that have been occurring, especially in liberal democratic countries. And a lot of the younger Democrat supporters have been very disappointed with Biden being the presidential candidate in 2020 due to his moderate nature. Mm. Um, So younger constituents see voting Biden as mere settling rather than a preference. Mm. So it indicates that settling for Biden would mean that democratic choice is only about settling for normalcy rather than trying to conceptualize what democratic leadership means. What are your thoughts on this? Are we actually expected to be disappointed by how democracy actually runs? Well, there is a massive issue in terms of communication between traditional politics and younger generation. And we know that in many, many countries, young people are not engaging in politics anymore. Young people are more interested in um, individual issues rather than party politics. And an example could be, for instance, environmental issues or any other, you know, anything that you can think of. So like single issues rather than the overall party politics. And that's something very important to see because, and to notice because, um, it is, is happening in all um, democratic countries. So it's not a peculiarity of the US or Australia or English speaking countries. No, it's always, um, that's what's going on. And it's a massive issue because you need younger people to be engaged in politics to, you know, to make them to have an impact uh, when it comes to elections, when it comes to policies and stuff like that. In the context of the US, problem with the Democrats, and that's a problem that they have been having for a long time they are somehow not willing to tackle is the fact that democrats are seen in the u.s as a small group uh, of privileged white people not necessarily uh willing to open up their doors to new generations uh the concept of the elite mm-hmm. um, is very much in place when it comes to democrats mm-hmm. um the reason why Clinton lost the election is also because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were willing to vote for Trump rather than voting for the same faces, face in this case, but faces plural because the Clintons come as a... Because it's always the same people. And the fact that uh, you as Democrats are willing to put as the uh, candidate for that specific political party as a um, pass me the term, as a kind of like an old man, again, rather than starting an old man, also an old face, like face that have, have, has been seen for many, many years in different capacities um, during previous uh, democratic governments, if you will. Hence, uh, how can be young people interested in engaging with such a old group of um, elite um, while in the end of the day, uh, there is a need for new generation of Democrats to come in and start to be able to talk with uh, the younger generation in a different kind of way, not necessarily 
um, from a political, just some political arguments, but also in the way how things should be done. Mm-hmm. And that's a massive issue because, again, we are analyzing Trump and the US at the moment, but this is very much happening across the board. And at some point, uh, you'll see less and less people engaging in elections and that what has been going what has been going on for a long time in the US and well, in Australia just because we have compulsory voting here then numbers are slightly different but let's say you didn't have compulsory voting in Australia how many if you look at the between the age of 18 and 35 not many people will actually mm. be voting during elections because they're not interested in that type of politics mm. and it is an issue that democratic countries will have to face at, at some point maybe there's a need for a change not necessarily changing our faces or changing our personalities but a change of how you could engage with younger generation um last point so we've, put, we've spoken in this podcast before about the cambridge analytica scandal what are the chance do you reckon of that happening again with like Russian interference as well in 2020. And you know, there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of disappointments and pessimism with the 2020 presidential election because of what happened in 2016. What should be our response to that? I think it's a it's a problem that's bigger than mm. us as individuals. Mm. These are the results of uh, states' relations with private industries that manage data and, of course, relations um, between states. It, it becomes very... It, it's interesting to see um, how, what, how media discuss about these issues, the information that we get. And you're absolutely right. It's caring because it's completely out of our control. So when mm. the... You know, I think the issue is more about does my vote really count? Mm. Um, or will that be interference in um, electoral systems so that we don't necessarily know whether elections are uh, transparent and fair? Whether we see these um, phenomena happening, we question that. But to be honest with you, and that's probably it's my personal opinion, not necessarily an academic opinion, mm. that's my personal opinion, it's a bigger problem that the single voter uh it's something that states to be needs to be aware and in charge in order to demonstrate that elections are run in a free and fair way Mm -hmm. that we know that these aspects will not have such an impact in determining electoral outcomes uh whether it will happen or not we have not we don't even have a full picture what happened there Mm -hmm. um and we will never know Mm-hmm. And there is that kind of level of trust that people should have in the system or must have in the system. And as long as people will have that level of trust in the state, uh, people will not question that. The problem will happen if we see these, these happening more and more often. Hence, people will start um, developing this lack of trust towards mm-hmm. the state. And that's where we will see a problem mm-hmm. in the relation between citizens and the state. Yeah, and, and talking about trust, there's a lot of um, surveys that show that people have decreasing confidence to democracy. But at the same time, there is still a lot of people who are conf- confident that democracy is still the best way to run a government. How do we begin to reform the decay of democratic institutions to renew it so that we can bring back trust into the systems? It's a big question, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that I'll have the answer. The question mm-hmm. is, actually, I think I'm trying to try to flip your question. Okay. Uh, and putting into another question, it's just like, you know, we assume that 
democracy, um, or it has been for a long time, that democracy is the best system because of freedom, because of, of course, protection of human rights, because the ability to allow people to have an impact and have a saying in political decisions. And we saw that happening uh, for, for a very long time and assuming that democracy was the best system mm -hmm. to have in place uh, when it comes to states. Uh, the problem is nothing better came out. <laughs> mm. Don't have a system that it's working better than democracies. Whether we can question how fair it is for everyone to vote uh, and how fair it is allowing people to vote whether they are informed or not. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's not a big question, but you know, it's one of the compromises that you have to make if you it's better to have everyone included rather than excluding someone mm. building trust in, uh, uh, in in democracies it's something i think we see this as a challenge these days because um, people are more aware of the lack of transparency but that's something that has always been there mm. and i think uh, we have different tools these days to understand that um, is not as transparent. There is always a level of corruption that comes with that. And the, in these days, I think there is a lack of um, trust in the system because we are more aware that the system is not as perfect as we mm. people back in the days used to think it was. Uh, do we have a better system in place that we can... Uh, use rather than having democratic system? No. Uh, is that is democracy the perfect system? No, it's not. Mm. Um, the problem to me these days is to try to get people engaged in politics and especially younger generation to be engaged in politics because the way that politics has been done creates this huge distance between younger generation or the people and the elite mm. um, that makes people completely disengaged and to me that's going to be key um, if you want to make democracies function in the way they should in the next couple of decades. Well thanks a lot Kiara, it's, it's very insightful yeah and it's really great to have you in this episode. Well thank you everyone for listening to this episode and um, please stay tuned for the next episodes and very follow us and subscribe us in our channel. Thank you, bye! Thank you, bye! bye.